Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we travel a trail that covers over 90 miles and circumnavigates a massive volcano. But this is no easy stroll in the woods around the edge of a mountain. It's punishing up and down hiking through dense forest, alpine meadows, and even alongside glaciers, all within striking distance of Seattle. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Wonderland Trail in Mount Rainier National Park in Washington State. Welcome to the show, everyone. Don't forget to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for trails to cover on the show, or if the show inspired you to hike a trail and you actually went out and hiked it. If you have hiked a trail that the show inspired you to hike, you could be featured on our Walking the Walk segment. In that vein, let's talk about one listener who did hike a trail after hearing about it on the show. Listener Mimi Cortez of Southern California hiked the Manaslu Circuit and Sum Valley Trek in Nepal after hearing episode 15 about it. Mimi reports that she had quite an adventure. She stayed five weeks in Nepal, exploring as much as she could, which she says was actually a bit too long if she was honest about it. She hiked Manaslu and Sum Valley in 15 days for a total of 13 days on the trail which is a pretty aggressive pace. She also did a small trek in the Gandaki province of Nepal for four days and three nights. She reports that the Manaslu Trail is changing a bit, and I may have talked about this on episode 15 about that hike, that there are roads being built into the area where the trail exists, and Mimi reports that there are more roads opening into towns Uh, Also, that there have been lots of landslides in the area that have caused changes in the way the trail is put together. So there you go. A listener who took an episode to heart and one that's on the other side of the world to boot and went and did the trek. So if you have also done a trek that you were inspired to do after hearing an episode on the show, tell me about it. Reach out to me, trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. And I'll try to feature you on, on this Walking the Walk segment. Thanks again to Mimi for telling me about her trip. All right. On this episode, listener Clay Ryan is going to be on the show. Clay lived in the Pacific Northwest for 25 years before recently moving back to Northern California and was able to hike the Wonderland Trail shortly before he left the Pacific Northwest, and actually in 2019, just a few months before the pandemic. I'm excited to cover the Wonderland Trail. This is a hike I've wanted to do for a long time. Last year, my son and a friend of mine and I all entered the lottery for permits, and we didn't get one. So until I'm able to get a permit to do the hike, this is the next best thing for me. Before we get started, I want to remind you 
about Outdoor Herbivore, our sponsor for the show. Outdoor Herbivore makes and sells tasty backpacking meals that have lots of calories for a hungry hiker, are packaged in boil-in-a-bag packaging so that they're very convenient to cook on the trail. You just pour in hot water, stir, and seal them up for about 10 minutes, and then your dinner is ready. As you know, Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals are either vegetarian or vegan, but also, as you know, and as I always say, you don't need to be a vegetarian or a vegan to love them. They are delicious meals made with high-quality ingredients. Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide and also provides a discount code to Trailsworth Hiking listeners. So to get 10% off your order at Outdoor Herbivore, go to OutdoorHerbivore.com and enter the discount code TWH10P. So that's Trailsworth Hiking 10% to get your discount on Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. Outdoor Herbivore is a sponsor of the show, so please show them some support. They help keep the show going here, and it'd be great to give back a little to them as well. So thanks again to Kim and her team at Outdoor Herbivore for supporting the show. Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, let's talk about Mount Rainier. In episode 13 on the Three Sisters Loop, We went into the history of the Cascade Mountain Range and a little bit of detail on stratovolcanoes. So if this is new to you, it might be a good idea to go back and listen to episode 13 to learn all about the Cascades and stratovolcanoes and the geology that we're talking about here. So I'm not going to repeat all of that information, and we'll jump right into talking about Mount Rainier itself. Mount Rainier is an active stratovolcano, which basically means a volcano that keeps erupting and creating new layers and building upon itself as after each eruption. So you have these each strata, each layer, based on each major eruption that forms the mountain, which is why you get these sort of classic big cone-shaped mountains that are stratovolcanoes. Mount Rainier is 59 miles or about 95 kilometers southeast of Seattle. It's the tallest mountain in Washington state and in the Cascade Range. Its prominence, meaning how much it sticks up from the landscape, is actually higher than even K2, which is the second highest mountain in the world. So if you've ever been to Seattle, you know this, but it has an enormous impact on the skyline and the horizon of the area. It is such a big mountain that really sticks out of the landscape. Also, Mount Rainier has 26 glaciers on it. It's the most glaciated peak in the lower 48 states. And it has two volcanic craters on its summit. One really interesting thing about the summit is that although it is covered with ice and snow, because there is heat coming up through the fumaroles of the volcano, there is melting that occurs under the ice cap, which creates caves. And... Scientists have explored those caves, and the ice caves on the summit of Mount Rainier are really an interesting feature that just creates this really bizarre, luminous, arched ceiling situation with lakes underneath and heat and ice and just a whole interesting contrast of natural phenomena that you can only find inside a glacier atop a volcano that is still essentially active. 
And there's really a whole cave network that's been found under there. Although it's obviously changing as the climate changes and, and is an ever developing situation. So as I mentioned, the prominence of Mount Rainier is something that's really, I won't say unique. A lot of big volcanoes are like that. And, you know, we've seen pictures of them probably from other parts of the world, like Mount Fuji or Cotopaxi or other places like that. But this is one of those kinds of volcanoes that really dominates the landscape. We have friends that live in Seattle. And although they don't live in this home anymore, in the last home they lived in, you could, on a clear day, have a striking view of Mount Rainier just from their living room. And I've also been in on streets of Seattle or neighboring cities and just walking down the street, looking at the end of the block, seeing this massive volcano imposed upon the landscape and the horizon. So it really is a dominant feature in the Seattle area. Not only that, it has a high probability of erupting again and maybe in the not too distant future. One of the things that happens with Mount Rainier is because of all the glaciers, it can, with an eruption or with heating up, put off these things called lahars, which are volcanic mud flows caused by essentially quickly melting glaciers as the mountain heats up. And so that can be a major problem in addition to lava eruptions is also these lahars that create mud flows that can destroy the landscape. For example, today there are 150,000 people living in modern cities that are on top of previous Mount Rainier lahars. So if that were to happen again, it could be a serious problem. The last major eruption of the mountain was about a thousand years ago, and there have been minor eruptions as recently as 1854, and some say even more recently than that. Overall, it's considered one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the world due to its proximity to a large population. And if you listen to episode 13, you know it's along the Pacific Ring of Fire. You don't have to look further than Mount St. Helens to be reminded of how dangerous these volcanoes in the Cascades can be. In 1980, Mount St. Helens had a major eruption that was catastrophic for that area. Although, luckily, Mount St. Helens itself is in a less populated area than Mount Rainier. Native peoples have lived in the Mount Rainier area for at least 8,500 years. The descendants of the original inhabitants are still in the area, and that would be the Nisqually, the Puyallup, the Yakima, and Cowitz, among other peoples. The Puyallup people had several names for the mountain, but one of those names was Tacoma. And there are lots of theories about what that name means, but it's obviously an interesting name because it's also the name of the other major city in the Seattle area. Tacoma is the large city just south of Seattle. The current name, Mount Rainier, was given to the mountain by George Vancouver. If you want to learn about George Vancouver, listen to episode 19 about the West Coast Trail. In May 1792, Vancouver was the first European to see the mountain. The name he gave to Mount Rainier honors Rear Admiral Peter Rainier, who was a friend of his. Peter Rainier served for the British in the American Revolutionary War and in the Napoleonic Wars, among other things. Today, lots of people climb to the summit of Mount Rainier. There are eight to 13,000 attempts per year to get to the summit. 
50% of those are successful. So a pretty high rate of people having to turn back and try another day, often due to weather, because Mount Rainier is not terribly far from the coast and is such a big mountain, there's a, quite a good chance of weather events on the mountain. There are a few climbing deaths each year on Mount Rainier. Climbers, though, I think know the risk of what they're doing. And although they don't expect to get hurt or die, I do think most climbers understand that is a possibility. Hikers like me who hike trails rather than doing sort of, you know, really adventurous cross-country trips all the time, I think are less concerned about that. But I do think that hikers like me should be aware of the risk of what we're doing. For a moment, I'm going to talk about hiking solo, which is something I do quite a bit and really enjoy doing. And I've talked about on prior episodes, I think in the Pemi Loop episode, I talked with my guest on that episode about the benefits of hiking solo. In the last episode on the Ohlone Trail, I even did an entire episode about a solo hike I did. Also though, now as I'm older, although I see enormous benefits in hiking solo, I do so with a, a GPS device that has emergency capabilities because I do worry about things that could happen if I didn't have that ability to contact uh, emergency help. And so, although there are lots of benefits to hiking alone, such as the solitude, the ability to reflect, the heightened senses that you get when you're not distracted talking to other people, the ability to see wildlife when you're alone, the, I don't know what it is, but sort of the ability to really absorb what you're seeing. All of these things are, are extremely valuable benefits of hiking alone. In addition to the sort of practical benefits of learning to do all these things without the help of others, learning to rely on yourself, learning to handle any decision or weather problem or gear problem or navigation problem without others, is a real bonus in my mind and something I've come to really love. But of course, the safety risk is much greater. If you were to slip off the trail on a small patch of ice or twist an ankle or get caught in really bad weather without the right gear or have gear get uh, destroyed and not have good replacement gear, lots of things could happen when you're alone. And so there is an additional risk, even though I don't think most hikers really think too much about it. And I raised this issue because I wanted to share one story that arose in Mount Rainier National Park recently. In October 2020, Sam Duball went to hike the Mother Mountain Loop Trail, which is a 17-mile hike near Mowich Lake. And he was an experienced hiker and just wanted to do an overnight trip and was equipped for it with all the gear you'd need to do a, a backpacking trip like that. Sam was an avid hiker who had hiked in the United States and in the Himalayas. And he had recently moved to the Pacific Northwest because he was an anthropologist and had just started teaching at the University of Washington in June 2020, a few months before. Even though he was only 33, Sam was already an incredibly accomplished person and also had an incredibly bright future. He had graduated from Stanford University as an undergraduate, had gone to Harvard Medical School, and had a PhD in medical anthropology from UC Berkeley 
And even after that, he had done field work in Uganda, studying the Lord's Resistance Army, a militant group there, and written a book about it. And so certainly a person who was very capable in just about everything he did. But he went missing on this hike and has never been found. Search and rescue teams found his car at the trailhead and a few days later found a water bottle that was his. But despite lots of intense searches, Sam was never found. Nobody knows what happened to Sam Duball, or where it happened or why it happened. And although this is also a risk in any city in the world, I think when we put ourselves out there alone in the wilderness, we do have to realize that although we're not climbing to the summit of Mount Rainier, and we we may not be putting ourselves in that kind of risk, but we are putting ourselves at some risk. And so it's a pretty tragic story what happened to Sam Duball. And I don't know if there's a lesson to be learned. I don't know. I believe he did have safety equipment and, and other things that most of us would be expected to have traveling solo. But it just highlights the fact that every time you go out there, you have to be aware of what you're doing and be as careful as you can be. And even then, things can go wrong, whether accidentally or encounters with wildlife or people with ill motives. But in any event, uh, there you have it. Mount Rainier, not just the mountain in climbing situations, but even in hiking situations, has claimed its fair share of lives. All right, on that note, let's switch back to <laughs> something a little more cheery, and we'll keep uh, Sam Duball in our thoughts. So Mount Rainier was protected as, a, as the Pacific Forest Reserve in 1893, but then in 1899, President McKinley made it our fifth national park here in the United States. It has a rich flora and fauna. Just briefly, there are deer, marmot, there's bear. There's also the Pacific fisher, which is a kind of animal in the weasel family. And Pacific fishers actually went extinct in the park at one point, but they, ha- but they have successfully been reintroduced. In addition to the rich tree cover that the area has, there is also an impressive wildflower bloom as the snow melts off in the early hiking season. And the area is known for alpine aster and glacier lilies. The Wonderland Trail itself was built in 1915. The original route was much longer. It was about 130 to 140 miles, but it was also much less scenic because it was placed lower down on the mountain, more in the forest. And along the route, there were several patrol cabins that the Park Service built to house rangers. Seattle's legendary Mountaineers Club did the first trek of the route in 1915. But after more hikes in subsequent years, it was actually the Mountaineers Club members who lobbied for a more scenic route. And ultimately, the route was uh, placed higher up the mountain and was made a little bit shorter. Today, it's about 93 miles. It became a national recreation trail in 1981. All right, with that introduction, let's go into my conversation with Clay Ryan about his hike of the Wonderland Trail. Clay Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. 
Absolutely. Glad to be here. And I've been thoroughly enjoying your podcast. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you for being a listener. It's great to have a listener on as a guest. I've been doing more and more of that as I've had more and more listeners who are coming out of the woodwork and deciding that they really do want to share some of the hikes they've done, which is great. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into backpacking and trekking as well? Yeah. Well, you know, my family always emphasized outdoor activity and nature growing up in the Sacramento area was great because of its proximity to the Sierras and Tahoe, Yosemite, you know, the coastal range. But as a kid, I remember doing, you know, probably more day hiking. And it's funny because the few overnight trips I do remember as a kid going into Desolation Wilderness or climbing Mount Whitney and camping a couple nights on the mountain. I also remember just having this archaic, heavy, uncomfortable gear and, you know, being this skinny kid with this old school external frame pack digging into my bony hips with every step. So it's kind of amazing. I embraced uh, backpacking as much as I did later on, but, you know, something must've stuck with me. You know, you, you forget the pain, but you never forget that view or, or that sense of pride and accomplishment. But yeah, I think moving to Seattle uh, really kind of sealed the deal. I, I went up there for college in 95 and ended up uh, staying for 25 years. It's the headquarters of REI, the Mountaineers, you know, Polar Fleece is kind of a, a staple of every wardrobe. So it's just, just kind of baked into the culture. And it calls to you. I mean, on a clear day, you know, you can see Mount Rainier to the south and Mount Baker to the north. Uh, you got the Olympic Range over to the west. Backpacking just uh, kind of became my weekend warrior activity of choice uh, with what felt like, you know, just an endless system of, of trails and beautiful areas to explore. Yeah, the Pacific Northwest is definitely a mecca for that kind of activity. And I think you're right. It's really so close as part of it, right? Because you can really see Mount Rainier from the city of Seattle. And it really does feel like you're among those mountains, among the Cascades, among those big volcanoes, which is a really cool, cool place to be. One of the things you said really struck me, which is that you used to do these hikes when you were younger with all this really heavy gear, and you're, you're amazed that you kind of stuck with it or that you ended up loving it. And I think I've said this on a prior episode, but I'll say it again, which is that's how I think you know you've really found the thing you love is even when it's uncomfortable and kind of miserable because of you know the weight or bad weather or whatever it is, a lot of people have that first trip that maybe doesn't go the way they want, or the first few years, they don't really know how to work the gear. And if you love it through all of that, you know, you're in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You also have a blog, which I think is pretty cool, called Synaptic Mosaic. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I do like writing. And uh, several people in my life had encouraged me to write more, but I couldn't come up with a specific theme. You know, so then I thought, well, maybe that can be my theme. I, I have this uh, sort of eclectic mix of interests and activities from hiking and travel to driving around in a Model T to having a daughter who's a circus performer to enjoying the occasional cigar over some heady discussion of theology or politics, you know, all the stuff you're, you're supposed to talk about in polite company. But I, I think it stuff, suffered from uh, maybe a lack of a through line, plus social media kind of supplanted, you know, more traditional blogging and my sporadic once every other year cadence of posting probably served as a, a, a way to just dump whatever random thoughts I had in my head out for the consumption of no one beyond my mom and maybe a few others. Uh, but the one thing that uh, generated some recurring interest on it is actually that which instigated it in the beginning. And that was a series of posts I did on our first sort of international trekking experience we did 
when our eldest daughter, who's now 15, was just 11 months old, I took on this comically enormous pack that carried her as well as a bunch of other gear. And my wife had a big pack of her own. And we did uh, the Tour de Mont Blanc, as you know, because I reached out to you after your recent episode on that trail, which brought back just all these fond memories and, and nostalgia. So on the trekking side, that was our first big adventure. I posted it, you know, our trip journal and some pictures on my blog shortly thereafter. And I've been delighted over the last, you know, gosh, 15 years now at the number of people who have reached out with interest in replicating that adventure with their own young children. And uh, I've always been happy to, you know, connect and provide whatever tips and advice they're seeking. So that's been great. Yeah, that's really neat that you were able to do that hike. I mean, I, I know how tough that hike is, as you know, and you were able to do it with a pretty small baby. And I can see why people would reach out and really want information about how you made that happen. And so that's great that you've created that resource. And even like you said, you probably didn't realize that you were creating this resource that would be there for so long on the internet, but it's strange how things develop on the internet. Um, so that's great. How did you end up hiking the Wonderland Trail? Yeah, well, it was one of those bucket list things, but it really starts with Mount Rainier itself, which just had an almost magical draw for me ever since moving to Seattle. You know, as I mentioned, you see it right there from the city, just this gorgeous, ever-present behemoth looming over the city. And I'd done three shorter backpacking trips within Mount Rainier National Park, or four if you include uh, climbing the mountain itself, which involved camping, you know, high up on the mountain for a couple nights. I got to do that in 2001. And so it just felt natural to cap it off by circling the Wonderland Trail, which, you know, is just one of those epic Northwest trails you have to do. And as it turns out, we had the, this was late 2019 that I did the trail. We had this pandemic that would descend upon us just a few months later. And, and then a few months after that, I would take the opportunistic chance to make a, a permanent move back uh, to NorCal. So I didn't know this at the time, but it would end up becoming a sort of bookend to my time living in the Pacific Northwest, which maybe I ascribe too much sentimental meaning to, but somehow that feels kind of special too. That is neat. And you know, it's not like you couldn't have hiked it once you moved back to Northern California. It is kind of a cool thing to do while you still live there, while it's still your home. Yeah, exactly. How did you go about planning the hike? Yeah, so I read one book beforehand. Uh, it's called Discovering the Wonders of the Wonderland Trail by Bette Philly. It's an older one. Uh, it was first published in 1992. And actually, I think in the foreword, the author says she actually wrote it in 1969, and it took that long to get it published. So uh, it has been updated a few times over the years, but it still has a little bit of an old school vibe to it. So some of it you have to read with a grain of salt, like when she's recommend, you know, carry that extra pair of shoes in addition to the heavy waterproof boots. And, and of course, the book itself, uh, you know, you want to make sure to bring that on the trail with you. Well, that's almost a whole pound by itself. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, I liked the more old school read. It gave me a, a sense of what to expect from the topography of the trail itself, as well as a sense of history and connection to people who have been hiking this trail for decades before what we think of as maybe our more modern, lightweight, civilized gear. For maps, uh, you know, I studied all kinds of maps for it. I primarily, the one I carried on the trail was the National Geographic Trails Illustrated map of Mount Rainier National Park. I think one of my hiking companions also uh, carried the Green Trails maps which uh, I also love for all Northwest hiking. I, I actually wish they made more for California. They're 15-minute maps, I think, so maybe not quite as detailed 
as the seven and a half minute USGS topos, but I, I think more than adequate on an established trail where, you know, you're not going to be doing any hardcore orienteering. So here's the toughest question I have for you is how did you get a permit? Cause I've tried to get a permit for this <laughs> hike and I wasn't able to do it. Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. The permits can be famously hard to get. Uh, they do a lottery based system to limit numbers. And this was actually our third attempt. So we had some try and fail uh, as well. They open up the permitting system for, I think, a two-week window in March, uh, and then they don't review applications until after that. So it's, you know, it's not like getting Hamilton tickets where it's whoever can refresh their browser the fastest. Uh, anyone who submits within that window should have an equal chance. But I think it was partly luck and partly strategy. We each, uh, my two hiking partners and I, submitted slightly different itineraries, and we were targeting a September trip, which is after peak season and uh, probably after some of the most competitive dates. Uh, I will say flexibility is key. So the more accommodating you are on shifting your dates and campsites, the more options you have. They do also reserve, I think it's 30% of the permits for walk-ups the day before your trip begins. I don't think you could realistically rely on that for scheduling the whole trip, but it could be handy for making a modification, which we actually did on our trip so that we could incorporate the spray park variant. And I'll talk about that later on. But another strategy is look for the camps with the most tent sites. Uh, and it shows that on their website, as you might you know, better your chances uh, to get the lottery on those. As an example, I think, you know, one of the camps, Dick Creek, is I think the smallest. It only has two sites. So it might be more competitive and limiting if you choose that in your permit application as opposed to a larger one. Who did you hike with? Yeah, I did this with my friends, uh, Paul and Dale. We've known each other uh, since shortly after college, and I've been hiking with these two guys for years. I've done a backpacking trip with at least one, if not both of them, for probably uh, each of the last 20 years. And we don't shy away from higher mileage days. I love backpacking with my wife as well. That was a, a shared interest for us early on, but I saved some of those you know, higher mileage days to reserve with uh, these friends that, that are into that, which is maybe a more recent evolution in my hiking style. You know, It's not a high priority for me to make it to camp at three o'clock and have several hours to sit around. I don't mind that, but I also don't mind hiking throughout the daylight hours and, and just walking all day. And our compatibility with the three of us is really good in that regard. One wild card, though, was uh, after we'd already scored permits, uh, right about three months before the trip, I broke my leg playing soccer. And I was determined not to let that get in the way. These permits were hard to get. So I just kind of became a man possessed uh, in terms of rehabbing to recover and get ready. Very disciplined about physical therapy, you know, up to my pain threshold every day. So if my friends had any misgivings about me keeping up, they kept it for themselves. Uh, and I think we, we ended up fortunately well matched on pace. I was able to recover enough to to kind of keep up. The only exception being maybe the last day and a half when I really slowed down on the downhills was actually the knee of my good leg uh, that started bothering me probably from overcompensating and, and favoring the bad leg. But I kept up on the uphills and ultimately it worked out. Uh, I did use trekking poles and this comical thigh high compression sock that was very sexy uh, and was uh, <laughs> generally able to, to keep pace with them. So. Yeah, that's brutal that you, you broke your leg three months before. Okay, I'm trying to think of, there are lots of injuries that there's no way you'd be back in three months. Like if you had torn an ACL or if you had an Achilles or something like that, but I guess a bone actually heals fairly quickly. But that's, a, that's still surprising to me that you were able to do it three months later. Yeah, it's a maybe a little bit of an asterisk. It was a compound 
tib fib. So, you know, uh. clean separation of both bones in my lower leg. But the irony is that with a lesser break, it actually might not have been possible. But with that type of break nowadays, they just go straight to putting a metal rod down the length of your tibia or shin bone. So you're technically weight bearing right away and, and almost recovering more from the surgical injury than the initial break itself. So it's, it, it might be, you know, cheating a little bit nowadays. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever works. So let's talk a little bit about the logistics for this trip. What time of year? I mean, I'm guessing it's pretty much a summer only or early fall kind of hike. Yeah. I think peak season is probably July and August. And then, uh, I think June and September would be considered, you know, shoulder season for this trail in June. You could obviously still have some lingering snow fields and in both June and September, you're going to have uh, the main disadvantage is that the weather is going to be just a little more unpredictable. We did September, I think fifth through ninth. Uh, so the main advantage of doing that, as I mentioned, is being after the peak season when permits might be a little bit easier to come by. But going at that time, we also saw far fewer people than expected, probably a combination of the time of year in doing a, a Monday through Friday schedule. I'd say most days we encountered no more than a few other hiking parties over the course of the day and often had camps to ourselves. But even if you go during peak season and you know the trail and camps are at capacity, it's a big enough area. The parties, I think, tend to spread out. And it's nice that the limited numbers do preserve that wilderness experience without it being too crowded. The Pacific Northwest is famous for its unpredictable weather and lots of rain, even in the summer. Is there something you need to do to be prepared for that other than just bring rain gear? I mean, there, is there any thought about how you deal with the weather in general and hiking in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, always. So it doesn't really matter what time of year you go backpacking in the Northwest. Uh, rain is always at least a possibility. You know, they say there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad gear. I'm not sure I buy that entirely, especially the older I get. I'm, I'm not afraid to cancel a trip if the forecast is, is guaranteeing just complete misery the entire time. But a little rain, you know, I've learned to deal with. You have the right gear and ability to manage it. But I think we were pretty fortunate given the time of year of five days on the trail. We had rain a couple nights while we were sleeping, uh, but during the day, basically, you know, some fog and overcast skies on the first day, and then a steady drizzle through maybe half of the second day, but then clear skies, I would say all the way till day five when we were almost back to the car anyway. So overall pretty good. We did carry a minimalist tarp in addition to the rain fly. Uh, so we kind of put that up over our tent and that helped us keep the tent and rain fly together dry when we when we packed them up each morning. And so you just mentioned that you did this hike in five days. Now, this is a 93-mile hike, which is 150 kilometers. And there was a time when I would have done paces like that. I think my friend Tony and I did the John Muir Trail at a pace kind of like that mileage per day. But that's pretty big mileage per day. What's a reasonable amount of time, you think, for most people who maybe don't have super light gear or aren't used to hiking long days like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, there's going to be a variance depending on on your comfort level. I but I think you're right. We took a fairly aggressive pace. That was partly due to just, you know, the time we had allotted for being away from families and the permits we were able to attain. Historically, again, according to that Bet Philly book that I mentioned I read, I, I think the average back in the day may have been closer to 12 days. But I think now with modern gear, people just tend to travel a little bit faster and lighter in general. So I think the average today is probably closer to eight days. 
if you look at different trip reports on on this trail. But as I mentioned, uh, you know, we were a group that tends to be comfortable with higher mileage days. So it, it just depends on on what you're up for. As far as elevation goes, this trail is not at high elevation where the altitude is going to be a problem, but this trail does have an enormous amount of up and down, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, the range is pretty reasonable. You're not going to have to worry about altitude sickness or anything, but uh, you do have to keep in mind the trail really vacillates between the high and low end of that range, which I think ranges from about 2,300 to 6,700 feet. So you're constantly going up and down with very little flat sections. I think there's over 22,000 feet of total elevation gain accumulative over the course of the trail. And the best description I read from that book was imagine a, a baked apple pie and, and Mount Rainier is sort of like the, the mound in the middle and the Wonderland Trail is like that crimped edge of, of that crust, just a constant up and down ridges all the way around the, the edge of the pie. So, Yeah. I mean, when you look at any mountain, you see these sort of ribs that come off of all the different sides of the mountain. And if you're going to be circling the entire mountain, you're going to be going up and down all of those ribs. Yeah, that's right. What about gear? I mean, you mentioned that you, I think, go pretty fast and light. Any particular special gear that people need for this trip? Obviously, good rain gear is important. Other than that, it seems like pretty normal backpacking gear will will do the trick. Uh, And one other thing that I wanted to throw in there is what about food storage in light of being in bear country? Yeah, good questions. Nothing special in terms of gear. As you said, we tend to be a fairly minimalist group. We did bring that extra tarp in addition to our tent and rain fly. So that's one thing. Obviously, you want a good, you know, rain shell. Altogether, the the tent and tarp split three ways wasn't wasn't too bad. I think we actually all wore more lightweight trail runners as opposed to heavy waterproof boots as well. Uh, and again, that's a matter of taste. Personally, I, I like being a little bit more nimble and light on my feet, and I find it makes them less tired and sore at the end of the day. And generally, any water crossing that's big enough to get you wet will have some kind of footbridge uh, over it. So I, I think you're okay without waterproof boots, but you may also like the ankle support of a higher top. So obviously, it's a matter of comfort and taste. For food storage, there, there's some limiting factors in the sense that you have to stay in designated campsites in Mount Rainier National Park, unlike uh, some other parks and wilderness areas. But one of the benefits is they do have all those campsites equipped for uh, food storage. So there are either bear lockers or bear poles at every campsite. And uh, so you, it, it's nice that you don't have to carry a big, bulky, heavy plastic bear canister like you do in some other areas, for example, Olympic uh, National Park, which is over uh, to the west. So, What about the markings on the trail? Is this pretty easy trail to follow? It is. There's some signs where needed at intersections with other trails, but really not necessary for the most part. The trail's fairly obvious. There are a couple pretty short sections, like descending out of Spray Park, uh, where you're going through maybe a rock and boulder field where the trail becomes a little less obvious. But you can still, you know, kind of see where you're aiming in the distance and make your own path or look for cairns. But I don't think getting lost or off trail is a serious concern. Okay. And what about getting to this hike? Is Seattle basically the easiest way to get there if you're coming from out of the Pacific Northwest, coming to fly into Seattle? Yeah, that's definitely going to be your closest uh, closest airport. Okay. And you guys hiked this in a, was it clockwise? We did. Uh, we went clockwise. No major reason for that. I I do think it's the traditional direction, but I'm not sure why. Um, I I think, you know, comparing to like the Tour de Mont Blanc, like we were talking about, I think that traditional direction is counterclockwise or anti-clockwise, as they like to say in Europe. (laughs) 
It, it's funny. Sometimes I wonder if whomever you know gets there first uh, just gets to arbitrarily declare that, or if there's a better reason. But I, I think you could be equally happy uh, doing this trail in either direction. You chose the White River Trailhead. There are a few trailhead options. Why did you go with that one? And what can you say about the different popular options or not so popular ones that might be other choices? Yeah, our reason was mostly permit related. I, I think we chose three different diverse starting options when we put in for our permits. And, and that's the one that came back with the most favorable itinerary. It's also incidentally where I started when I climbed the mountain on the lesser traveled route from the Northeast. So I thought that was kind of cool. But Longmire would be, I think, the one of the more popular starting points. You could also start at Sunrise. Uh, those two areas are easily accessible by car. And then there's some areas that are also accessible by car, not quite as easily, like Mowich Lake, which is a, a longer, you know, one-way in and out uh, unpaved road, but would also be a perfectly viable starting option. And would these same trailheads that we've just talked about also be potential options for a resupply if somebody wanted to drop food? They would, yeah. So we didn't cache supplies, but I think the most obvious two spots to do so are at Sunrise and Longmire. Those are going to be the most easily accessed, and I think you can mail supplies there as opposed to dropping them off in person. I think you can cache at Mowich Lake and Ipsit Creek, but you have to drop off in person, and they're both a little more out-of-the-way drives to get there. And you wouldn't want to do Ipsit if you're hiking the Spray Park variant because it's off that part of the route. So those are a couple additional options on the west. More on the southeast side, there's Ohanapakash. It's easily accessed by car, but it's not on the trail. So to pick up your cache there, you'd have to take a detour side hike of four to five miles or, or hitchhike a ways back on the Stevens Canyon Road. And really there, you're not that far from Longmire anyway at that point. So I'm not sure it's worth it. So I, I would stick with either Sunrise or Longmire. You could do both, which might make sense if you were starting your trip from Mowich and then pick up two caches. And that would kind of break things up into thirds, not necessarily equal thirds, but decently close. And for accommodations the night before the trip, there doesn't seem to be a lot really close to Mount Rainier National Park, but there is camping that you could use in the park. Yeah, that's right. So my wife and kids brought me to the park a day early. We took it as a day trip to the park and they left while I camped there at the White River Trailhead and met up with my friends the following morning to start our hike. The benefit of doing that and the reason I came a day early was to go to the ranger station that day before. And I alluded to this earlier, which they let you do that within one day of the start of your hike to make any available uh, modifications to your trip based on the availability of remaining walk-up permits. So I took advantage of that because we wanted to do the, the spray park variant of the trail, which our original permitted itinerary didn't allow for due to a campsite on the other route. So I was able to get that night's campsite changed to another that would work. Can you talk a little bit about the spray park variant? I know we're going to get to the itinerary, but maybe it is helpful now to explain to people what that is and why that might be an option they want to consider. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, So if you're going clockwise, like I did, the trail splits uh, right at, at Mowich Lake, and you can either go north around Mowich Lake, and, it, and then it drops down on the far side of a ridge called Mother Mountain and takes you over to Ipsit Creek. Or you can uh, turn right at that junction, and that keeps you higher and inward closer to Mount Rainier, and uh, that goes through Spray Park. And I think it's a it's a very popular variant. It's, I think, a few tenths of a mile shorter, but a lot more climbing. You're going up pretty high there, and it's just a great terrain. You're in these high alpine, you know, sub, subalpine meadows and 
glacial fields and a great place to see wildlife, great place to see, you know, lots of just water runoff off the mountain. So it's, it's a nice variation. That's a good segue to my, my next question, which is, can you talk a little bit about what this area looks like for people maybe who haven't been to the Cascades and the Pacific Northwest to think about doing this trail? What are they going to see when they get there? The terrain is just magical. It's almost hard to describe, partly because you're in such diverse terrain at different points. I mean, you go from lowland, old growth forest to transition zones right at tree line to these subalpine meadows, and then to hiking out along a high glacial moraine. And then you drop down across a river below the toe of a glacier, and then you climb up and do it all over again. So <laughs> you don't get bored. Uh, the scenery is constantly changing. You're going through these different topographical zones, and it's all beautiful. And, and then, of course, looming over it all is, you know, the granddaddy of the Cascades itself, Mount Rainier, which personally, I, I never get tired of looking at. Uh, and you get to see it from just about every angle. So even, you know, the mountain itself is sort of ever changing in view. From the Wonderland Trail itself, can you see some of the other big peaks in the range? Yeah, there are lots of other surrounding peaks, and that's partly why I liked having a more general map of the whole national park, because it's a well-established trail and didn't feel the need to carry a super detailed zoomed-in one. Because then I can look at the map and identify some of those neighboring features and be like, oh yeah, there's Shriner Peak, and there's the Tatouche Range, and you know some of these other subsidiary peaks and nearby features. The rivers, likewise, are kind of raging out of the toe of the glaciers, like I mentioned. Uh, they often have a, a silty or cloudy look to them if they're you know, direct glacial runoff, and you'll see them flowing through some rocky, almost moonscape, uh, or sometimes coming down through a high grassy subalpine meadow at Indian Bar. You really get a good sense of that. And then, of course, you'll pass by a number of nice lakes and waterfalls as well. Uh, Narada Falls is uh, one that's a short detour off the path. I think that's well worth it. And then there's just some one-of-a-kind features that maybe defy categorization, like Box Canyon. It's just this impossibly narrow and deep gorge, 180 feet, I think, carved by a, a tributary of the Cowlitz River. So in addition to the mountain itself, yeah, there's, there's a lot of other kind of neighboring nearby features to, to pay attention to. All right. Maybe it makes sense now to talk a little bit about the itinerary that you guys did for your hike, keeping in mind that some people might want to do a little bit less aggressive version of it. So day one, you're starting at White River. And what's your destination for day one? Yeah, so we went as far as Nickel Creek. And you start the climb from White River going up toward the Frying Pan Glacier. This was one of our five days that was probably the most socked in, uh, maybe, <laughs> mainly in what I would say was kind of the middle third of the day. I don't think we got rain, but an increasingly dense kind of mist or fog as we climbed, which which is kind of a shame because you you cross the highest point in the trail on that section, which is Panhandle Gap, which is also one of the closest points of the trail to the mountain itself. So, you know, it compromised our views a little bit. It, it was gorgeous still, the the surrounding terrain we were on, but we couldn't really look out to get the the big view of the mountain itself. So I wouldn't mind going back to hit that section again, potentially as just a day hike. But near uh, that Panhandle Gap, you're going to cross two camps. One is Summerland and one is Indian Bar a few miles after. We stopped at both just for kind of a quick snack break. But I would recommend if you can stay at one of these camps. They're great ones to target. One thing I might not have mentioned, most of the camps on the Wonderland Trail are really tucked down in the trees. They're kind of kept a safe distance from the water. And of course, they do that to minimize the impact. Uh, but you don't get much of a view from the camps themselves. 
I would say these two are probably the biggest exceptions to that rule. Summerland is a little higher. You're kind of perched up in a rocky moraine field in an area where, you know, the glacier probably retreated relatively recently. And then Indian Bar, you're more in one of those subalpine meadows or valleys where you're watching the Ohanapakash River come right out of that glacier and flow right through camp. Both of those camps also have shelters, which I think are two of maybe the five around the trail. Those are pretty minimalist, uh, just three walls and a roof, uh, totally open on one side. There are people that sleep in them, but I'm not sure how that works. To be honest, I, I don't think you can reserve them. I think it's just first come, first serve. So certainly not anything you'd want to rely on, but it could be a nice respite for a snack break if you happen to pass by there when it's raining or something. Yeah. Or if you're camped there and it's raining, it gives you a nice place to cook dinner before you go crawl back into your tent. Yep, Absolutely. You guys went to Nickel Creek day one, which was 17.8 miles, about 28 and a half kilometers. Day two, you went from Nickel Creek to Devil's Dream. Yeah. And if I were absolutely forced to pick a least favorite section, this might be it. But remember, that's relative to an otherwise spectacular trail. So taken in isolation, it was still a great hike. I think part of it is you're paralleling and crossing several times the Stevens Canyon Road that goes in toward Paradise and Longmire in this section. So it maybe just doesn't have quite the same feeling as solitude, but there are definitely some highlights. Uh, You just might have to share them with uh, day hikers or, or even tourists coming in for a short jaunt from their car near a turnout in the road. But those highlights here are are Box Canyon, which I mentioned before, just this impressive, deep, narrow gorge. Uh, You pass by the Reflection Lakes down below Paradise, which are where you can get some of those classic shots of Mount Rainier kind of reflected in the water of a lake in front of you. The Tattoosh Range is is a prominent range down to the south of the park through most of this section. And then Narada Falls, as I mentioned, which is a worthwhile short detour from the trail, known for having great rainbows if you hit it in the right light conditions. This was the one day that we got a little bit of rain while hiking, the only day we got some rain while hiking. And it was just a steady drizzle for maybe a few hours in mid-afternoon as we approached Longmire. Longmire is a cool spot to check out, uh, even if you're going to Mount Rainier by car. It was the original park headquarters. It's open year-round. And there are a few different buildings and interesting history to check out. For the most part, we just passed through, but we did duck into the ranger station. And I I cheated on my no connection to the outside world rule ever so briefly so I could uh, connect to their Wi-Fi and just send a quick text to my wife to let her know we'd made it that far at that point in time. But then we ended the day after Longmire, you climb up and over Rampart Ridge. You cross over perpendicular to another trail on that ridge, which I'd actually like to go back and and day hike someday. It, It goes out to Van Trump Park, which I've heard is amazing. So one of the benefits if you do a longer trip on this trail with maybe shorter mileage days is it might afford more opportunity for some of those longer side trips. But we continued on past Pyramid Creek and up to Devil's Dream, uh, both you know nice enough camps, but I'd say fairly nondescript. So I would say checking in with your wife is a safety check. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> day two was about 20 miles and almost 32 kilometers. Day three is Devil's Dream to, I'm going to say this wrong, North Puyallup River. Is that wrong? Yeah, it's actually pronounced Puyallup. And and anyone outside the Northwest uh, always has trouble with that. So (laughs) you're in good good company. All right. Yeah. So this section, this was our shortest day. It surprised me at how much I enjoyed it. And it was nice that it was shorter because it started to get a lot bigger climbs and descents than we'd had up to that point. 
not far after Devil's Dream, you pass this meadowy area called Indian Henry's Hunting Ground, which is very scenic, has great views of the mountain. There's a little patrol cabin that you pass by there. And then you climb up and spend some time just really high up on this glacial moraine on, I think it's called Emerald Ridge. And you're just looking straight at the Tahoma Glacier, which is one of the bigger glaciers on the mountain. You're kind of exposed up above tree line here. So I remember, I think this is the first place where I broke out the sunscreen. I started to feel the effects of no shade for a sustained while up there. And I remember it being another one of those areas, the first being near Panhandle Gap, where it's a bit like a desolate Martian scape almost with the leftover rocks and reddish earth from the glacial retreat. So then you do a steep descent down before crossing one of the outflows at the toe of that glacier, uh, the South Puyallup River. And this is the first of a couple uh, big suspension bridges. So it's kind of a cool crossing. And so that's maybe something to be aware of. These are bridges that if you have issues with heights or, you know, bridges that kind of sway when you're walking across them, just something to be aware of. I think they're engineered pretty well, so I wouldn't be too concerned. And then another big up and down through some more meadows and then down to the North Puyallup camp. I remember there being kind of a cool, unexpected waterfall right before you cross over into this camp where the water's just going into this kind of little gorge or hole below you. And there's another trail into this camp from the end of a little known and lesser traveled road called the West Side Road. And I remember there being one other party there that had come in from the short hike from that trailhead. And so that day was about 13.3 miles and 21 and a half kilometers. All right. And so the next day you're starting at Bialop River. How'd I do? Yep. You did great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. To Cataract Valley, which is about 21 miles. There were 34 kilometers. What can you say about day four? Yeah. So from the shortest day to the longest, but you kind of don't notice the pain. Uh, I mean, probably <laughs> probably because A, the, the trail's conditioned it to itself at this point, and B, because the, the scenic payoff is, is really rewarding you with every step at this point. You kind of continue with uh, some of the same up and down as the day before, crossing more of those subalpine meadows. Another one with a little patrol cabin by it at Golden Lakes, which would be another nice camp to stay at. Then you drop down to one of the lower points in the trail, crossing the South Mowich drainage, and then you climb right back up again a couple thousand feet to Mowich Lake itself. And this is where we talked about where the trail splits and you have that option to either go north on the more traditional or official Wonderland Trail route or turn off uh, to the Spray Park route, which we did. So you stay higher and closer to the mountain on that uh, spray park variant. And this whole stretch is just almost beyond description. I mean, the angle on rainy from here is some of the best on the trail, especially if you hit it in the glow of that late afternoon sun, like we did. And I just remember having to, you know, stop every few steps for a picture because, oh, this angle is just slightly different than than the last. And, you know, they're all amazing. Again, it's it's mostly subalpine meadows and you're staring right at a feature of the mountain called the Willis Wall which is just this sheer cliff on Rainier itself that's a a remnant of the collapse of part of Mount Rainier from one of its major eruptions, however many eons ago. There's a couple of waterfalls up here. You're likely to see marmots and have pretty good chance of seeing a bear. This was one of the three areas that we saw one just kind of feeding on the berries in the early evening. And then you cap out a spray park at this high rocky pass, and then it's rocky descent for a bit. And as I mentioned, the one spot on the whole trail where I'd say you have to have just a little bit more careful footing and watch for cairns to keep you on track. 
and by the time you get to Cataract Valley, you're you're back down in the trees and and feeling a bit more sheltered down below tree line once again. Okay. And then your last day, day five, Cataract Valley, and then back to White River was 18 and a half miles and almost 30 kilometers. What was that part of the trail like? Yeah. I, I mean, so first of all, you feel like after the last two days, you're moving a little faster again. If you look at a map of the trail and and sort of imagine it like positions around a clock face, those last two days took us basically from like the seven o'clock position to the 10 o'clock position around the map, maybe close to 11 o'clock. So that quarter of the trip took two full days, whereas the other three quarters were closer to a day each. So that elevation gain and loss on the western side of the mountain really takes some time. But this last day was another spectacular day. We started out crossing the Carbon River right below the terminus of that glacier. And this is the second and other big memorable uh, suspension bridge, even bigger than the, the first one I described over the Puyallup. I should mention there's another optional variant that some people do here where you can turn north further away from the mountain and do the Northern Loop Trail. This trail would actually add about five miles to your trip. Uh, I think it's a little over 16 miles before it reconnects with the Wonderland uh, versus about 11 and change if you stay on the Wonderland proper. I have hiked that trail on a separate backpacking trip, and it's a really great trail with some other highlights like Yellowstone Cliffs, Windy Gap, and Grand Park, which is this huge flat meadow, very unique in all this decidedly unflat terrain. In fact, the first time I looked at a topo map of Mount Rainier National Park, you can see Grand Park there clearly. And I remember thinking, is that a mistake? Did someone like misfilling in the topo lines in that section of the park? But no, it is this unique big flat area. But anyway, uh, we took the standard Wonderland Trail route this time. And after you cross the Carbon River, you have a unique section of trail next because you basically turn up toward the mountain immediately after crossing the glacial terminus and you just start climbing up right next to the glacier. So you get to make friends with the Carbon Glacier for quite a while. And it's a super interesting glacier, unlike others you'll see, because it's basically burrowed its way under the rock. So it's almost like you're looking at a giant mole trail underground. And I think it also has some distinctions of being one of the longest and I believe the lowest elevation glaciers in the lower 48. Its, it's terminus reaches down close to 3,500 feet, which is you know pretty low for a, a glacier unless you're up in Alaska or something. So super interesting. You do start to feel the climb here. But once you leave the side of the glacier, another highlight immediately after that is this section along Moraine Creek as you're approaching Mystic, which is one of the exceptions to the constant up and down roll. Uh, I can't remember how long it is, maybe a couple miles, but for a while, you're just taking a pleasant and very gently ascending stroll through this meadowy valley while you're aimed straight at Mount Rainier the whole time. And the lighting just seems idyllic as you're sheltered between these two ridges. So it's another one of those spots where you're like, did I get that picture? Well, it might be slightly different from the one I took 30 seconds ago. So I better snap another just in case. <laughs> so after passing Mystic Lake, you go down and up around the Winthrop Glacier and then climb up to Skyscraper Pass. Uh, another fantastic uh, sort of mountain in, right in your face type of view. And from here all the way back to sunrise, you're probably going to encounter day hikers. Sunrise itself is really nice. Uh, you don't have to go by the visitor center itself unless you want to. The trail actually bypasses it slightly. But I've always thought uh, sunrise is possibly the most scenic place you can get to by car, uh, at least in Washington state. So definitely a worthwhile visit in its own right. And then it's just a straightforward descent from there back down to White River and back to the car. So you talked about Summerland and Indian Bar as possible other campsites to consider. If you're doing a trip that took more days, 
Uh, are there other campsites that you think might be worth considering? Yeah, in addition to those two, I'd say, which are on the east side, a couple on the west side, I think would be Golden Lakes and Clapache Park would be a little more interesting. They're a little higher up in the meadows and not necessarily as tucked down in the river drainages as we were at the North Puyallup. Dick Creek is another good one. It has good scenic value by the Carbon Glacier. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there are only two sites there. So it's probably going to be more competitive on the permits. And then lastly, I would say Mystic. I have stayed there when I did that Northern Loop separate uh, backpacking trip. And the campsites themselves are tucked away in the trees, but it's a really short walk up to Mystic Lake, which is just beautiful in the still of the morning with great views of the mountain and some potential postcard reflection shots. What about side trips? I know it's hard on a big loop hike like this to even consider it because you're feeling like you're taking mileage away from your day in some respects, but are there some side trips that are really worth doing? Yeah. Again, if we were doing a bit longer itinerary with maybe shorter mileage days, there's probably some I would have done, but Narada Falls, which we did do is a no-brainer. I think it's less than a quarter mile off the trail and well worth it. I would like to take that Rampart Ridge trail out to Van Trump Park. That's two and a half miles one way, so a bit longer. And that's down in the Longmire area. And then on that southern side of the trail where I mentioned you're kind of paralleling the highway, it could be worthwhile to get off the beaten path and take the side trips to Snow and Bench Lakes and to Pinnacle Peak. Those are both a little over a mile one way and supposed to be good. And then lastly, on the off chance that you do the Northern Loop variation, there's a great spur trail. I think it's eight tenths of a mile off to Natural Bridge, which is this impressive large natural archer bridge, uh, which I have done and, and highly recommend. The other thing to consider is some of these detour trails actually have campsites as well, and it's possible that they're less competitive to get permits for. So it might be worth considering as an option if you're willing to detour a little bit for your camp. You know, I actually really like that possibility, and I've done that on a number of trails where it doesn't feel like I'm losing my time. You know, when you're trying to do a, a trail from point A to point B or a loop, you kind of feel like, well, I'm losing time on the trail when I go off to some trip that's three miles in another direction completely because that's six miles added to my day. But when you actually have a campsite in mind or there's a destination, it actually feels like this is really worth doing and we're going to spend a lot of time, we're going to enjoy it, and you feel less rushed. And I do think that's a good option. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I, I feel like some of those unexpected you know, side spurs can be some of the most serendipitous moments that we remember. So. So at the end of the day, when you look back on this, why is this a trail worth hiking? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just got that ideal combination of just having epic scenery, diverse topographical zones, like we talked about, a rich history to the surrounding area, and just being a Northwest classic. I mean, I'm not sure I've met any avid backpackers in the Northwest who haven't either done the Wonderland Trail or have it on their bucket list. So it's just one of those things. And what about your best memory from this trip? Well, it's hard to come up with just one, but I think my favorite section of the trail was definitely Spray Park. I had high expectations of it going in and it still managed to exceed them. So just a, a spectacular section of the trail. All right. And anything happened that you didn't expect to happen? I know there's always something, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, a pleasant surprise, like I said, was there were fewer people than I expected. Uh, and I definitely think we lucked out on the weather uh, given the time of year. As far as mishaps, I, I had a little closed cell phone sit pad and I left that out at camp while we were sleeping. And the next morning I came out of the tent to this mess of tiny blue bits of foam all over camp as a mouse or something just went to town chewing it to shreds. 
So I picked up all I could and packed it up in my garbage, but all in all, uh, pretty minor on the scale of uh, potential mishaps. So I can't complain. When you look back on this trip, is there something that you really love the most about it or that really sticks out in your mind? Yeah, I loved every moment of the trip. But what's great is there's also these lingering things that don't go away even after it's over that that feel good. Like one of those for me is is certainly the sense of accomplishment after, you know, doubling down on my readiness and conditioning while rehabbing from a broken leg. But also, uh, like I said, just having the trip unbeknownst at the time become a sort of bookend experience to my time living in the Northwest and to do that at Mount Rainier, which I've somehow always felt uh, some special connection to. It it almost gives it a a spiritual component in a way, but I'll try and avoid getting too mystical on you. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. Thanks for telling us about your hike. Before you go, while I have you, though, I've got a few more questions. What's one hike or trip that you've done besides this one that others should not miss out on? Well, sticking with the Northwest theme for now, I'd say the enchantments. Some people might think that's a little cliche, but it's pretty hard to argue with. It's in the central Washington Cascades, uh, part of the Alpine Lakes Wilderness Area. And it's just this amazing string of lakes in a high granite basin uh, right in the shadow of the Stewart Range. Outside of the uh, the Wonderland Trail, it's the only other really competitive permit spot in Washington as they really do limit the numbers. I've been able to do it twice and both times gotten lucky by hitting the ranger station in Leavenworth the morning of and scoring a walk-up permit upgrade to be able to camp in the upper basin, which is really the premium spot you want to be. And it's just a great experience. You can find similar areas in the Sierra high country, but for Washington, it's pretty unique. All right. You have to tell people what Leavenworth looks like. Uh, yeah, Leavenworth is the, the closest town to, to that uh, trail. I just mentioned the enchantments and it's in central Washington and it's this uh, Bavarian themed village. And so when you walk through it, it's just uh, like entering this other little Bavarian fairy tale world. And every business there has kind of embraced this theme and they have, you know, all the uh, sort of Bavarian themed balusters and roof lines uh, to their buildings and shops. So it's, it's pretty cool. So I heard that the person who designed Leavenworth is the same person who designed Solvang in California, which is like a little Dutch version of the same thing. I don't know if you've seen Solvang. It's in Santa Barbara County, kind of in the, you know, the northern part of Santa Barbara County, a little bit north of Santa Barbara. And it's it's almost a similar experience where the whole town has this sort of feel, but it's not German, it's Dutch. And I think the same guy designed them. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. I think, you know, a lot of people in Washington can maybe deride it a little bit as a tourist trap of sorts. But for me, I actually like it. I think it's this, you know, cute little stop on the highway that's in this great setting. You know, you're right there in the in the heart of the Cascades. So it's kind of fun. What is the next trip on your list? Well, I'm currently uh, tackling the Tahoe Rim Trail. Uh, It's a similar loop trail that circumnavigates the the Tahoe Basin. But rather than doing it in one shot, I think it's 170 miles. Uh, I've broken that one into four three-day sections. And I'm doing that with my brother. We did the first section last fall and are planning to do the remaining three sections this year. Besides that, I've still got a mile long list and you've added to it, by the way, through this podcast, (laughs) the the Benson Lakes Loop is definitely on my short list uh, after hearing about that. I'm also planning to do a big loop in the Hetch Hetchy region. I kind of love those sort of lesser traveled corners of Yosemite. 
Yeah, me too. As you can tell from the Benson Lake Loop, it is one of those lesser traveled corners. And the Tahoe Rim Trail is a fantastic trail. I did that trail a long time ago now, 2009, and, and really, really enjoyed it. So I hope you are able to complete that like you want to. What's the worst weather you've ever experienced while outdoors and how did you handle it? Yeah, well, if you're a backpacker in the Northwest, like we talked about, having a total rain out or two is almost a rite of passage. But the story I'll share, uh, I've actually started doing one or two more alpine climbs per year with some of my hiking friends. And one that was right on the edge of the comfort zone or maybe on the edge of prudent risk management due to weather was when I did Mount Shasta four years ago. And that was with Dale, one of the guys I did the Wonderland Trail with, and, and my brother, Matt. And for Matt and I, you have to understand Shasta had been our white whale. So we had been weathered off of it twice and two other times canceled an attempt altogether before even leaving home uh, due to a bad forecast. So this was our fifth attempt overall, third actually on the mountain. From base camp, we got a typical alpine start by headlamp in the middle of the night. Did you stay at Helen Lake? Yeah, just above Helen Lake uh, mm -hmm. and actually probably went too aggressive as we hit the summit before dawn. <laughs> uh, but that turned out to be a good thing because we it couldn't have been any later than we were, uh, or I think we would have been in trouble. By the time we, we hit the summit ridge, it was 70 mile per hour winds with gusts up to 120. I mean, we literally couldn't stand up straight, single digit temperatures and who knows what after adjusting for the wind chill. Uh, and the visibility started to close in pretty fast. I think it was down to less than 30 feet by the time we got back down to base camp. Thankfully, we'd had the foresight the day before when we got to Helen Lake to build a bomb-proof four-foot-high snow brick wall around our whole tent. So it was pretty wind-protected. But if we'd been any later than that precise window, we could have easily gotten disoriented you know, and lost finding our route down from the summit and, and been in more trouble. So it was a little on the edge, you know, both in terms of weather and on maybe the risk judgment front, but it worked out. Uh, we didn't get many pictures in that weather, as you can imagine, but there is one that my brother snapped of me as we arrived back at base camp where I'm just like the abominable snowman. I mean, covered <laughs> head to toe with rime ice. Uh, it actually looks pretty cool. It makes me feel hardcore. But uh, but yeah, I'm sure we were the only party to summit that day, and I'm thankful it worked out like it did. Yeah, so I, I climbed Shasta in 2006, and I think I, I didn't have, I won't say it's a similar experience to weather. It wasn't high winds, but we had a whiteout. Yeah. And we got up onto Misery Hill near the top, and it was a complete whiteout, and people were navigating with GPS to get to the summit. And it was one of those moments where I was thinking the same kind of thing, like, should I really be doing this? We got there and then luckily it cleared up and it was beautiful after we got to the summit. So the way down was just gorgeous. But what scared me a little bit is when we got down back to Helen Lake and then one of the rangers came up and said, oh, how'd it go today? And we said, oh, yeah, we made it to the summit. And he looked at us and said, I wouldn't have done it today. <laughs> yeah, one of those reality checks. Yeah, I think that happens when you're trying, like you said, multiple times, you get kind of summit fixation, kind of goal fixation. Yep. And that, that can get people into trouble for sure. It's one of the reasons I stick to backpacking more, most of the time and less climbing because I know that when you're ambitious, it can get you into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have a different sort of risk calculator. All right. Last question. Uh, you talked earlier about how you did the Tour de Mont Blanc when you had a very young child. What advice do you have for backpackers who are new parents? Yeah, I think, you know, just take your kids out early and often. Uh, I think a lot of people want to wait until kids are 
older, more physically capable, or will remember the experience more. Uh, but I say go while they're still young and portable before you're saddled with what I call the peak extracurricular years, which is what I'm in now with a high schooler and a middle schooler. But I just think, you know, with babies, especially, they just want to be with you. So find a way to integrate them into whatever you're doing, whatever you love, and it'll be life-giving to them. And I'd like to think formative on some subconscious level, even if like my daughter on the TMB, they'll be, you know, too young to remember it in the conscious sense. The other thing, whether you're out on a backcountry trail or doing an international trek and coming into a refuge somewhere, you've got a little built-in ambassador. (laughs) And I think a lot of people are worried their kids will be a burden to others, but that really hasn't been my experience. I think people love seeing uh, people do adventures with kids and, and they're generally ready to support that in any way they can. So a lot of times, you know, if anything, you get friendlier or, or special treatment. So, you know, get those young ones out there. That's great advice. Clay Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks again to Clay Ryan. So I hope Clay and I have inspired you to hike the Wonderland Trail. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk, as I've talked about on this episode. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we hike back in time. Almost quite literally. At the start of the hike, we'll be alongside rock that is a few hundred million years old. But then we'll descend through varied layers of color and types of rock, down and down until we reach bedrock that is almost two billion years old, where we find the majestic Colorado River. There, we'll spend the night in a beautiful cottonwood grove along a creek feeding into the Colorado, before ascending the canyon over the next two days. Yes, you guessed it. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.